Father, may we leave this place so much more in love with you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, last January, World Magazine ran a clip about um, traffic signs disappearing in major cities. I don't know if you had heard about some cities were having issues with traffic signs disappearing, but in Cranston, Rhode Island, um, there were local officials wondering where hundreds of unauthorized stop signs came from. According to the city officials, the 80,000 person town has about 700 unauthorized stop signs erected limits. State transportation officials have fessed up to putting up about one-third of them, and that leaves the city to sort out the legality of 450 renegade stop signs <laughs> on streets and parking lots. The Cranston's mayor's office is urging residents to regard all signs as legitimate until they sort it out. Their official statement is, drivers should not take this as a free pass. A stop sign is still a stop sign. Can you imagine? What a mess. Can you imagine an extra 800 unauthorized stop signs all over Clovis? Maybe about 1,500 over Fresno if you, if you do the population. Wow. Having the frustration of having to randomly stop places that you don't typically stop and don't want to stop. At each one, you're wondering, is this for my safety? Or is this just to annoy me and to keep me from where I'm supposed to go? Is this to keep me from plowing into a dangerous intersection, or is this a senseless sign keeping me from moving along? What is true for the road is true for the human heart, isn't it? We are dependent upon legitimate stop signs to keep us from plowing through dangerous intersections. But within our society, our own minds, and even, can I say, within our churches, there are hundreds and hundreds of stop signs, places, ideas, activities, to-dos, lists, 10 steps, that claim to be the required stops necessary for your good. But in reality, they're not all legitimate. Some are keeping you from going where God wants you to go. It's hard to discern, isn't it? If you're honest, if you're like me, I've been thinking about this a lot this week, it's hard to discern which stops are legitimate, which ones are from the Lord, which ones are keeping me from danger. And which ones are renegade? Which ones are keeping me from moving through as I'm supposed to? Just like Cranston, Rhode Island, we need somebody to sort out these signs for us, don't we? And we have someone. We have Jesus. This is why he came and what he came to do. In order to bring a people back to God, Jesus came to identify all our renegade stop signs. Signs that are senseless, signs that are keeping us from entering into the life that we have been created to enter into. And he has come to be the one stop sign that if we observe, if we come to a full stop, will allow us to enter into the life that we never thought possible. You see this throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. In the beginnings of the Gospels of John, um, the first four chapters, you see him removing illegitimate stop signs. Some of them were related to religion. But possibly for us, the most profound moment might be when Jesus was sent to a significant well to a specific woman to identify her renegade stop signs, her places, her ideas, her activities that were causing serious injury unto death, and keeping her from entering into the life for which she was created. He came to her 
to be a one stop, that if she observed, if she came to a full stop with him, then she could enter into the life she never thought possible. And I think her life's account, beginning with where Jesus stopped, has been given to us so that we can see, so Jesus can reveal to us our renegade stop signs in our own lives. And you might even be surprised. I hope you are surprised. I hope I'm surprised, even as I share this, as God reveals to me through her life, as he's been revealing, continuing to reveal to me renegade stop signs in my life. The places that I keep stopping at that are keeping me from the life I never really thought possible. So let's take a look at the passage, beginning with where Jesus stopped, because it's very significant. He, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, <clears throat> and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, it's easy to kind of just pass over this and not recognize what a significant well this really is. Jesus is sitting conspicuously and unavoidably at a specific place, and it's intentional, and it's to send a message to us. Jacob's well signifies God initiating relationship with people. If you look at Jacob's well throughout history, the early history of the Israelites, you will see that it is a significant place in which God initiated having a relationship, having a people for himself. It began with Abraham, who was Abram at the time that God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, a pagan worshiper. God revealed to him, called him out of his pagan life, and said, I want you to be the father of my nation. Jacob's well is the first place Abram stopped on his journey to the promised land. God appeared to him and built an altar and called upon the name of God in Genesis 12. And God promised him the land. This is where Jacob, his grandson, built an altar and called God mighty of Israel. Jacob was the father of 12 sons who would become the nation of Israel. And this is where Joshua assembled and called the people to renew their relationship with the Lord in Joshua 24. This is a significant place, Sychar, this well signifies God wanting to initiate relationship. See, what he's wanting to remind us here at Jacob's Well is that we weren't meant to be somebody. We were meant to know somebody. We were never meant to be somebody. We were meant to know somebody. And when we know the somebody we're supposed to know, that is when we become somebody. That's when we start to begin to enter into that relationship and enter into that life we've been created for. So it's significant that Jesus is at this well. And it's significant that he's at the well at the moment he's at the well. And it's significant that he's weary, and it's significant that he's thirsty, because guess what he's thirsty for? A relationship with an unacceptable woman. A relationship with a woman that would defile him, technically. In his thirst, Jesus initiates an unacceptable relationship, asking water from a woman who couldn't have and wouldn't have asked it from him. So for this specific woman, he comes, and she responds, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John wants us to know, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's surprised that he spoke to her. You know 
know who I am. I am a religious renegade in your eyes. I am a deserter of the true faith, you think. I'm an idolater, that's what you believe. I'm a mixed race, that's actually reality. You think I have no true lineage, but I do. You know how she mentions Jacob? No, my lineage is Jacob, even though you deny it. Although the Samaritans were a mixed race that grew out of the Assyrian captivity of the northern tribes and were hated, they were just as zealous for God as the Jews. And when they were not allowed to worship where the Jews worshipped, they built their own place of worship. But they hated the Jews as much as the Jews hated them. In fact, 20 years before Jesus came, they actually took dead bones and sprinkled them in the, in the, in the gardens around the temple to try to defile the temple in Jerusalem. So this animosity and this anger went both ways. She's saying to him, you know who I am? An object of your hate and, dis and, and um, disdain? And you also know why I'm here right now at this appointed hour. Because even within my religious community that is zealous for God, that is marked by morality, I am immoral. You not only know who I am, but you know why I'm here now. I am an outcast of the outcasts. What do you really want? Of course she's cynical. Who wouldn't be after her life? And Jesus says to her, doesn't rebuke her for her cynicism, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's shocked. You want me to ask you for a drink? Bad enough that you would ask me for one, but for me to ask you? You want to give me the gift of God? You want to give me living water? These words would have meant a lot to her. Gift of God was a common expression that meant everything God gives to man for salvation. Revelation, understanding, everything you need to know and understand to be saved. He's offering her that. I'm offering you everything you need to know about salvation. Forgiveness. And living water is a metaphor for life. To have a life that you've never dreamed possible. I am the one who knows your life, Jesus is saying to her, is one of unquenchable thirst. You are dying inside from stagnant waters, wells dug by men. At this well, I'm initiating an unacceptable, what would have seemed to be an unacceptable relationship with you. And I'm doing it to give your soul what it needs. She's suspicious, of course. She won't ask him for it, but she asks where he gets it. I think I'll go try to find it myself. She wants it. And because she wants it, because he's, he's begun to hit on a nerve, she's open to more revelation. Gift of God, living water. The revelation begins with where he stops, Jacob's well. God is initiating a relationship with her, but she doesn't really see it yet, and she won't until she allows Jesus to explain more as to why he has come. Why is he stopping for her? John 4, 13 to 24, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Why is he stopping? Why is he stopping at this well? This well is making you thirsty, and it will always make you thirsty. Jesus is using her physical need for water to sustain her body to draw an object lesson of a spiritual need that she needs for her soul to live. Your soul longs for what I alone can give you, and if you don't get it, you're going to die. You're going to dehydrate to death. You are going to die eternally. So far, this well has injured you but it's leading to death. There is a thirst in you that nothing man creates on this earth will satisfy. You are made of more than earth. You were created for something more than you can find at this well. John Piper says, we are more than a collection of appetites. We are of God. Jeremiah 2.13, God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewned out cisterns, tanks, water tanks for themselves, broken water tanks that can hold no water, forgetting that they are not a collection of appetites, but they are of God. He's saying to this woman, You keep trying to satisfy your thirst with broken water tanks. Because they do work at first. Stagnant waters will work at first, but they will not do what you're looking for. And each time you drink from them, you will get thirstier and thirstier. Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, If I discover within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Yes! You were made for another world, and the things of this earth will not satisfy you. Jesus is saying to her, unless you let me enter into the center of your life, you will keep getting thirstier and you will die. And he is saying the same thing to us. Unless you give me access to the center of your life, you will not only keep getting thirstier, but you will die. Give me access. And I will replace these broken tanks with a spring. Now, a spring would have meant a lot to her. She's in an eastern country where there's vast deserts, temperatures are high, there's a huge need for water. Remember, this well is deep. She doesn't even know how he's going to get the water out of it. Jesus is telling her that her soul is every bit as desolate as the desert. Nothing on the surface and nothing below. He's telling her, within your soul... There is a sadness that flows through all that you do and experience. It sits below the surface, and it's there under any surface happiness, any other happy days you have. Underneath it is the sadness and this loneliness and this dryness that is sitting under the surface. Can you relate, ladies? I want to flip it. I can give you an inner joy that will bubble up through the surface disappointments and pain and even devastations. 
He's not promising her an easy life. He's promising her an inner spring that would push through anything that comes her way and give her an inner joy no matter what surface difficulties she experiences, no matter the surface sadness. And he's saying to her, it will not only satisfy your thirsty soul, but it will be a spring that pushes up through your soul's accumulated dust and filth. This spring that pushes up is going to clean it out, too. It's going to push out wrong ideas and wrong thirsts and your accumulated sin. It's going to cleanse you. It's going to change you from the inside, and it's going to keep changing you from the inside. What I give you cannot be stopped. It can't be built upon. You can build build upon Jacob's well. You can let it dry out, and you can build whatever you'd like. But what I'm going to give you, you can never build upon. Because whenever you try, guess what's going to happen? Water's going to come through it. My parents have enclosed a basement in their house over a spring. They didn't know why their basement kept flooding, not just when it's raining, but other times. And no matter how pretty she, my mom puts tile down, no matter how nice she paints the walls with great paint, guess what keeps happening? It's pushing through all her belongings, and it's saturating it. It's pushing through, and when it pushes through, guess what it pushes through with it? Dirt and grime and the minerals of the earth, and it brings them forth. This is what Jesus is saying. I want to give you an inner spring that no matter what you build your life upon, it's going to push through everything. It's going to change everything. It's going to change how you look at everything. It's going to change how you experience everything. It's going to well up to eternal life. The eternal life is not just for the future. It's a quality of life that begins now with saturating all our thirsts. Purpose, affection, perfect love, guilt, peace. It satisfies all those things. And then when we start losing that satisfaction, guess what? It bubbles up again. She doesn't get it. Or she won't admit it. She's willing to admit she has a physical thirst, but not a spiritual one. And some of you are thinking that same thing right now. She says, running water, indoor plumbing, I'm in. I'll be the first one on my block to have running water. Give it to me. I'll be the envy. Maybe I'll have friends now. I don't know. And I certainly won't have to come here. This place that reminds me of my loneliness, this place that reminds me that I don't belong. I won't have to just do the physical journey. It was probably a 45-minute walk, and it was downhill to the well, so that meant uphill with a pot full of water. Sure, running water. I don't want to come here 45 minutes each way, lonely and with a heavy jar. Oh, yeah, physical thirst? That's all it is? Let's talk about here, Jesus says. Call your husband and have him come here. Let's talk about what here really represents. Jesus isn't changing the subject. He's on subject. Here isn't about a 45-minute walk. Here isn't even about your loneliness and being an outcast. Here isn't about heat. Here isn't about heavy water. Here is about men. He is compassionate. He's aggressive and surgical and relentless in his love, John Piper says. Using the same word word here, Jesus wants her to see her deeper thirst. You have a spiritual thirst, all right, and you're satisfying it with men. 
Sometimes the things that we are trying to satisfy our spiritual thirst with are so big in our eyes that we don't even realize that it's our spiritual thirst that, we're, that we really have. And he's saying to her, you either can't find what you crave in a man, and so you keep moving on to another one, or, which is probably more likely in our culture, men can't find in you what they're craving for. Talk about feeling lousy and depleted and depressed spiritually. Either you can't find what you're looking for, and so you're going through men like water, or they can't find in you what they're looking for, and so they keep passing you around, or both. And what's her response? The woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Sidetrack? Not really. She's changing the subject, perhaps, but there's no tangents with Jesus. He knew exactly where he was taking her, and I believe he knew exactly where she was going to go. She's actually on subject. Jesus is like, let's, yeah, let's talk about worship, because actually that's the problem. Let's get to the core of your thirst. It's what you're worshiping. She talks about worship as a place, but he is showing her through this dialogue that it is the object of her worship that matters, not where she worships. Ladies, that is for us. It is not where we worship. It's the object of our worship. Jesus has been exposing that she does not have a place of worship, either Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. She has objects of worship, pleasure, belonging, desire, sex, acceptance, relationships. And these things that she's been worshiping, these objects, have not only disappointed her, they are in the process of destroying her. She is falling apart, falling into ash piece by piece. She's been worshiping these objects in spirit and truth. Spirit is not, a rela- is not related to the Holy Spirit. It's our inner self. She has engaged her innermost self, her heart, her mind, her thoughts at these stop signs of pleasure, belonging, desire, sex, acceptance, relationship, attractiveness. She has engaged her innermost self, her heart, her mind, her thoughts. She's been worshiping her objects in spirit. And they've become her truth. These relationships now define who she is. Ladies, what we worship will then define who we are. It will become our truth. And it will replace the real truth of who we are and who we were intended to be. Dan G. McCartney says, the loss of truth is itself a form of suffering of the worst kind. Your objects of worship have caused the worst kind of suffering, woman. Transfer your worship to me. Engage your innermost self, your heart, your mind, your thoughts. Engage your spirit towards me. Then let me tell you who you are. Let you be, then you will be washed by truth. Who I am, who you are. This is what Jesus meant when he says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's talking about abiding in him, abiding in his word. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. See, when Jesus says an hour is coming... 
when neither here nor there we will worship, he is not saying we're going to worship anywhere. Some people take that to go, oh, that just means we can worship anywhere. I'll ditch church on Sunday. That's not what he's saying. He's pointing to the new temple. You have your temple. We have our temple. Guess what? Both are going to be obsolete. There's a new temple. Me. An hour, mean, an hour in the Gospel of John always means the hour of Christ's death. I'm the new temple, and I'm going to thirst so you can find living water that will well up into eternal life. With the intensity that you have worshipped what has not satisfied you, worship me and find satisfaction. You don't need to learn how to worship. You just need to transfer it. Ladies, we don't need to learn how to worship. We do it just fine. We were created to worship, and we are all worshiping even at this moment. You know what you worship by what you spend your time on, your money on, where your thoughts go when nobody, when you can just let your mind wander. Those are the stop signs you are stopping at. And we don't need to learn how to worship God. We just need to recognize what we're worshiping and transfer it. Because if we're worshiping anything other than God, it is destroying us. It's redefining truth into lies, and it's leaving us thirsty. You don't need to learn how to worship. You need to transfer your worship. Elise Fitzpatrick, in her book, Because He Loves Me, says, Our problem is not that we desire happiness. No, our problem is that we continue to foolishly believe we can attain it apart from Him. Oh, how fast we run away from Him thinking it's not there. i got to go find it someplace else. We run the stop sign of Jesus, running to some other stop sign, thinking that's going to do it. And we get thirstier and thirstier. I don't get it. That's what she says. I don't understand what you're saying. She says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. You're confusing me, or uh, I'm not so sure I like what I hear, so I'm just going to wait for the Messiah to confirm it. Do we do that? And he gives her the final revelation for her to see the gift of God is grace. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. I am he. I'm the Messiah. I know everything you've done, and I've still stopped to initiate a relationship with you. I am means I am the pre-existing God. I'm not just the Messiah that you thought was going to come. I am God in flesh. I'm the pre-existent God. And the pre-existent God doesn't take her back to adultery, does he? Where does he take her to? Himself. He uses the adultery to draw out her thirst, to recognize what she's doing. But he doesn't go back and throw it in her face. He takes her to himself because really, ladies, idolatry and false worship all comes from breaking a relationship with who God is. It's just a symptom of a greater problem. Her response to this final revelation. So the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. At this significant while, she leaves her jar. Why? Someone greater than Jacob saw the word about me 
and offered me living water anyway. Come see him. She can run faster without that jar. I met a man who's greater than Jacob, who knows everything about me, and still initiated a relationship with me. Can this be the Christ? But notice, ladies, she still hasn't asked him for water. She dropped the jar and she went running, but she didn't ask him for water. She knew the living water would come from him, but she didn't know how. See, the hour had come for her to see her renegade stop signs and to walk away from them, which is what she's doing when she leaves this jar, to walk away from what's keeping her from entering into life, the life through which she was created. But the hour had not yet come for her to receive living water. See, there's two revelations in our life. There's a revelation that we are sinful and that we're stopping at things that are not satisfying us, that we have broken relationship and that God wants to have a relationship with us. But there's a second part, and that is to see what he has done, not just to see what, that he knows what we've done and still wants us, but to see what he has done. See, the hour came for her to know that the Messiah saw everything she did and still wanted a relationship with her, but this hour hadn't yet come for her to see everything he would do to have a relationship with her. She would first need to make a full stop at where Jesus would say yes to ultimate thirst so she could drink deeply, so she could have living water. She would have to stop where he would face his final hour, the cross, where he would drink in our sin to finish what God started at Jacob's well. He, he brought out a people for himself, and now he's going to seal it through his son. John 19, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. This is the hour, ladies, and which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified Jesus and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. But it doesn't end there. Three days later, he rose from the dead to prove that he is the one stop, that if we make a full stop, that we can enter into the life we never thought possible. He is the one stop sign that leads to life. He ascended into heaven to give us his spirit that would make alive his truth, to be a spring that wells up into eternal life. And some of you have shared, have been generous in sharing with me what God is doing in your life through his word, by the power of his spirit, that whether you're walking through divorce or disease or disability or disappointment or depression, you have this inner well that's coming and it's flowing out because of God's spirit and his word. Oh, what he promised he is fulfilling all around us. It is a spring that will not only satisfy our deepest thirst, but pushes out the dust and the filth within our soul, changes us from the inside out as we continue by his spirit to let this word pour over us, let it read us as we read it. It will push through the junk. We want to clean up the junk and then go to God. And he's like, no, come to me. Remember, he didn't take her to adultery. He took her to himself. 
And then after she comes to himself, I bet you she's never going to commit adultery again because it's about a relationship. It's about worship. A spring that will not only satisfy our deepest thirst, but push out the dust and the filth within our souls, change our inner being, saturate us, and satisfy our thirst for purpose, affection, love, a clear conscience. Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, says it's so hard to believe that God can do this because we think this broken world is the only world we're ever going to have. That's why we're stopping at all those stop signs because we really think this is it, if we're honest. But if Jesus is risen, then your future is so much more beautiful and so much certain than that. And it begins now. To enter into the life you never thought possible, though we will have to transfer our worship. You're already worshiping. Will you transfer it? The hour has come. Stop worshiping at renegade stop signs of family and fame and whatever your things are. I pray God is revealing those to you. Stop worshiping at renegade stop signs and transfer your worship to the one who stopped for you. The one who thirsts so you won't have to. He knows everything about you. When he hung on that cross, he knew you were going to be a mess. He knew you were going to be sinful. He knew what you were going to do, and he still is seeking you. You all have five husbands. They're different things. And he still did it. It's why he did it. It's grace. The gift of God, and Jesus is the only one who can give it to you because he purchased it for you through his perfect life given in your place. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14 and 16, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Oh, ladies, if we would just recognize the intensity with which we're worshiping at all these renegade stop signs, and pour that same intensity to the Lord Jesus, we would have a life we never thought possible. A well of joy that permeates the deepest and darkest pains and sufferings and disappointments. With the, with the intensity with which we have worshipped what is not and will never satisfy, Jesus says, worship me. It's not because I need it, it's because you need it. In me you will, is the only place that you will find satisfaction and the only place for eternal life. J.R. Tolkien in Lord of the Rings says, The hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. And as some of you have been so generous, as I said, to share your own stories, I know he's the rightful king. And if you haven't experienced it yet, trust us. Hear our testimonies. I know this to be true. Through the deepest and the darkest places, he has bubbled up. Through the grossest of sins that I thought were not redeemable, he has forgiven. And for the habits and the ugliness that I thought could never change, he is changing. The hands of the king are healing hands. He's the full stop. The hour has come and is coming. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Come.
Close your eyes, ladies. Oh, Lord, bring to our minds and our hearts the renegade stop signs. As you continue to minister to us through Leslie's singing, help us identify. More importantly, take us to the full stop at the cross and the empty tomb. <laughs>